Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Donald Trump, you may have heard, has been saying some increasingly anti-democratic, violent, and authoritarian things on the campaign trail. Meanwhile, new reporting suggests his retinue of advisors has been coming up with new plans, too, on how to use the levers of power to go after Trump's longtime targets, his political opponents, as well as immigrants. Going into the 2024 election, how should the media and technology platforms deal with Trump's most incendiary and divisive statements? Just about everyone thinks it's been done incorrectly in elections past. So what needs to happen this time around? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Donald Trump on the campaign trail. And we will immediately stop all of the pillaging and theft. Very simply, if you rob a store, you can fully expect to be shot as you are leaving that store. Shot. There has been no politician like him in modern American political history. Trump is running on the idea that he alone can fix America. He posts to his site, True Social, are filled with grievance and revenge. His speeches are apocalyptic, calling 2024 the final battle. And then there's the increasingly cinematic violence of his speeches. Blood in the streets, carnage, shooting. It's a strange way to run for president. It's not that Trump would not enact a distinct set of policies. That's not simply what he talks about on the campaign trail except perhaps his plans to deport untold numbers of immigrants from the country. So what's the media to do with Trump's authoritarian and anti-democratic rhetoric? How should it uh, be subject to tech platforms' content moderation policies? That's what we're talking about this morning. We're joined by Emily Dreyfus, director of the Shorenstein Center News Lab and co-author of Meme Wars, The Untold Stories of the Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We're also being joined by Ian Prasad Philbrick and Lena Bentahar, reporters at The New York Times who've been tracking Trump's comments and speeches and online. They're collected in their article, Donald Trump's 2024 Campaign in His Own Menacing Words. Welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, thank you. So, Ian, Trump's rhetoric is getting darker and harsher. I mean, this is part of your beat why do you think it's important to cover the specifics of what Trump is saying? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think part of it is simply uh, the extremity of what he's saying. And uh, I think your listeners got a hint of that if they haven't heard it already um, from that audio at the top of the segment, uh, just how extreme some of what he's saying is um, and and sort of how baldly anti-democratic it is. Right. I mean, I think this is a man who's running for the most powerful job in the country, arguably the world. Um, and, you know, he compares the U.S. to undemocratic countries like the Soviet Union and communist China. He says that's sort of what our system resembles. Um, he praises autocrats like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. Um, he continues to claim that the 2020 election was stolen. Um, he has very much focused on his own indictments, saying that there are two systems of justice, one for him and his supporters and, and one for others. Um, and, you know, last night um, on Fox News, he said that he might be uh, he wouldn't be a dictator except for on day one of his presidency. So I think um, I think these are not merely uh, statements on the campaign trail, uh, one off statements. I think they are. If you watch Trump's addresses um, to audiences, he tailors them a little bit based on who he's speaking to. But I think very much these are um, central to the reasons that he's running for president in 2024 grievance um, and revenge. And I think it's worth taking those uh, those comments seriously. Mm-hmm. Emily, you wrote a book on the meme wars, you know, this great body of cultural bits that get sifted into Donald Trump's speeches. I mean, what's the relationship between that kind of churning underworld of memes and the specifics of what Trump's saying? Trump is a meme incarnate. Trump was made for the meme era. Um, And I think what we discovered in meme wars and from watching so many hours of Trump and listening to him for so long, you know, he is he is everything that is exciting about entertainment and um, over the top uh, spectacle. He is just he makes himself a spectacle. And the people who love to fight the meme wars, who are passionate about it, who are against the establishment, they love anyone who is willing to be as transgressive as Trump. Hmm. And so Trump is was was just such catnip for that community. Um, and also he learned from that community. He had advisors um, who were very aware of what was hip in kind of like far right memet- memetic communities where people really work together to spread ideas. And he would amplify those ideas. He would amplify the memes on Twitter directly or he would say them at his rallies. And so he became kind of the embodiment of this idea that some people on the Internet could actually make something happen. They, like he was their ideal candidate and they worked so hard to make him the the actual candidate for the Republican Party. And then he became president and they were like, oh, my God, we did it. Um, so he he catered to them and he loved them and they still love him a lot. But nowadays in this election cycle, things are very different. Hmm. How, how so? Well, first of all, Twitter is different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Twitter was one of the main ways that Trump had power to amplify directly the um, the ideas that were coming from specifically the far right. I mean, let's be clear about it. The, the really powerful online meme communities that helped Trump get elected were all on the far right. He would um, use Twitter to directly share their content and reach millions of people. Whether the whether the um, media reporters and classic reporters were going to ever report on that or share it, maybe they wouldn't have wanted to amplify it. The, it Trump, having access to Twitter, took those gatekeepers away. Hmm. Um, but now he's not on Twitter. And, and as you said at the top of the show, um, he's making his statements now on Truth Social, which not many people are on. And so he has a little bit lost some of his direct amplification. Yeah. 
Lena Bentahart, you have been covering what Trump is doing on True Social. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what his posts are like? Are they like his tweets or do you feel like they're categorically different? I would say they're very different. Um, Trump's True Social account is is different. It's very different in that it, it is a direct line to his base. And so it... A lot of his posts are reposting um, poll numbers. They're talking about his campaign rallies. And then also they sort of go into just his general feelings about either what's going on in the news that day that's particular to him, Mm -hmm. um, either the Republican debates or, you know, uh, uh, policy, foreign policy. Um, And then also he talks a lot about his indictments and and he finds it very unfair that he has all these legal troubles really Mm -hmm. um, hindering him. And it's a lot of, it's a lot about his indictments. You know, uh, Emily, in previous election cycles, there was a set of media critics. And of course, we're going to bring in listeners who are all also media critics (laughs) uh, that covering what Trump says kind of, took our collective eye off the ball of sort of what Trump was doing kind of behind the scenes. For political reporters that you're in touch with through Shorenstein and your work there, are, are people worried about that? Or do they feel like they must cover the things that he's saying because they are so extreme, as Ian was saying? I think that um, political reporters have learned a lot and have grappled with this a lot. Um, you know, Trump's entire candidacy in 2015, 2016, and then his election really threw the media for a loop. Um, and, and I think really threw classic political reporters for a loop because a lot of people did not even the, even though they were taking seriously, as Ian was saying, what he was what Trump was announcing, they weren't taking it literally. <laughs> Um, and a lot of the articles that were written were kind of absurdist and pointing out how absurd this was. And the tone was very much like incredulous because mm-hmm. he was so different. And and then when he was elected, I think there was a real reckoning in the media of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why were we being so sure? Why were we so sure that because he was so different from anything that had ever mm-hmm. <laughs> been an illegitimate candidate for president, why did we dismiss and not take it seriously that he could actually win? Mm. Um, so I think there was a lot of like looking inward and seeing how can we do better. Um, and what I'm seeing this time around is that it's different because the criticism is not so much, hey, stop writing so many stories about Trump where you repeat all the crazy things that he's saying because every time you do that, you're normalizing those crazy things. Mm-hmm. That was the criticism last time. Um, now the emphasis is like, hey, actually, we know that when he says things, he means it. And maybe he isn't able to follow through on all of his promises, but he's not joking. <laughs> he's mm-hmm. he's definitely not joking. Mm-hmm. He's willing to engage in political violence. He's willing to to mean what he says. And I think a lot of reporters and what I'm seeing from Washington and just consensus within media and political reporters is that they are going to cover him seriously and literally now. Hmm. And there is a real emphasis, and I hope people will continue to do this right now, that what we don't need is more reporting about the horse race and about the polls, which is what Trump is obsessed with. You know, he's a rating obsessed. He's obsessed with the ratings. Mm-hmm. Um And a lot of political journalism is often like, who's ahead in the polls? And it's basically a horse race. And there's a um, a media 
professor named Jay Rosen who has a great uh, saying that he is trying to get people to agree with this cycle, and I really endorse it, and it is that um, journalists should be covering the stakes, not the odds. Mm. Mm. And I do think that we're seeing more and more of that because the stakes for Trump are so high. Mm. You know, Lena, when I read what Trump has uh, said or I, I listen to it, I oftentimes was struck that he he has stuck to a lot of consistent themes all the way back to 2015. But do you notice changes in the way that he's deploying those themes? Yeah, I would say that there are two differences compared to 2015. One is that he's sort of more informed than he used to be. Mm-hmm. He, he's he been through the presidency. He knows what he can and can't do. And he knows with, with regards to what he can't do, he knows why. And so he can sort of cater, he can sort of like appoint people. If he were to get a second term, he would be able to appoint people who are more sympathetic to him, who would be more willing to, to deal with his indictment troubles um and so when he and so when he when he um talks about you know um revenge or or um getting getting uh, specifically getting revenge on on his uh political opponents um he he knows what he's talking about this time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there's also been uh, a ton more reporting, I feel like, already. You know, The Atlantic just had a special issue. The Times is launching a new effort to sort of how would Trump govern, where people are trying to really go and connect the rhetoric to the actual policies that uh, he might enact to do these various things that he says uh, he would like to do. Um, this morning, we're talking about Donald Trump's inflammatory rhetoric, how media and tech platforms should handle it. Joined by Lena Bentahar and Ian Prasad, reporters at The New York Times who've been tracking Trump's comments and speeches and online. You can see them in a big compendium, Donald Trump's 2024 campaign in his own menacing words. We're also joined by Emily Dreyfus, director of the Shorenstein Center News Lab and co-author of Meme Wars, the untold stories of the online battles upending democracy in America. How would you like to see the media and tech platforms do things differently this election cycle? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org. We can go on the digital community. Go to kqed.org slash forum to sign up. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Donald Trump's inflammatory rhetoric and how media and tech platforms should or might handle it differently this time around. We're joined by Ian Prasad Philbrick and Lena Bentahar, reporters at The Times who've been tracking Trump's comments. Also joined by the director of the Shorenstein Center News Lab, Emily Dreyfus. Let's hear another uh, one of another cut from Donald Trump's speech. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections and will do anything possible. They'll do anything, whether legally or illegally, to destroy America and to destroy the American dream. The real threat is not from the radical right, The real threat is from the radical left, and it's growing every day, every single day. It was uh, Donald Trump. I believe it was on Veterans Day. Um, Ian, can you – there's a lot to unpack with this one. Talk talk to me a little bit about what you hear in that statement. Yeah. Um, I think you hear a few things. Um, One is sort of just the – the extent to which um, Trump has really torqued up to the uh, rhetoric about his political opponents, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the use of the word vermin because of its uh, connotations uh, throughout history, um, because of uh, the way it has been deployed by fascist dictators uh, in the 1930s, uh, arrived, at, you know, got a lot of attention. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's worth paying attention to some of the other words in that sentence too, right? Communists, Marxists, fascists. Um, these are the terms that Trump has not just on one occasion, but repeatedly used to describe his um, political opponents today. And I think that just sort of jacks up the stakes of the election, right? And you can hear him talk. That's another thing you sort of hear him uh, say in that sentence is um, the idea that the stakes of this election are so high. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the segment uh, talking uh, Trump talking about 2024 as the final battle uh, and describing an election as uh, sort of this combat uh, with with a, uh, an enemy that's um, not abroad, but at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is part of the these are not just um, I, I think it's important to say these are not just uh, one off statements by Trump. Um, those kinds of that kind of language. Uh, if you watch his speeches, if you read his true social posts, that's really um, pervaded his current campaign for the mm-hmm. White House. It's, it's become much more central to the reason he's running. You know, Emily, one interesting piece, you know, I think it was just yesterday, uh, Dan Frumkin, kind of, you know, journalist, but also like political journalism critic, uh, ran a really interesting story with an academic that was about how the frame of the great battle, it of course is coming from Trump's side uh, through speeches like this. But there's a lot of people on the left who are also saying, but no, wait, this really is like a battle for democracy. What do we think about that frame and like, is there a way to kind of solve this puzzle? It's really interesting. I was just thinking as Ian was talking, um, you know, Trump has been using this battle frame from the beginning um, and he's been practicing it. it. Who the enemy is has changed and how seriously he is willing to talk about them in terms that we would find deeply dehumanizing has changed a bit. But um, what, what's really interesting is there's a cycle here. Uh when Trump in 2015, 2016 was making statements that sounded very anti-democratic um, and and then later in 2020 was, you know, he wouldn't promise that he would have a peaceful transition of power. There were all of these very aggressively anti-democratic things happening. And there were statements that he made back on the campaign trail then that were 
sounded a lot like Nazi Germany today, um, like similar to the vermin comments. And what was interesting was that people on the left would be like, he sounds like a fascist. Oh, my God, he sounds fascist. And then he and his supporters on the right were like, that is so over the top. Employing the word fascist is absolutely crazy. You know, you are really pulling a, nar- a media narrative here. You know, don't go over whatever. And they, they refused to accept that that was a um, valid criticism. And as a result, it actually became that, p- that people in the media and I think on the left in general really lost some of the moral authority with those words. Like if you mm. remember, they turned anti-fascist into like a supposed group of <laughs> radical leftists who scholars have found there to be, you know, not much there there with mm. th- that other than that it was a right wing created media narrative in many ways. Um, but Trump has this amazing ability to absorb the criticisms people lobby at him and then reflect them back at those at at his critics right in a way that's really compelling so now interestingly even though he has become even more anti-democratic in his rhetoric and in his words and in his actions he's now accusing his enemies of being anti-democratic right um and it, it's like whatever you know whatever you say to me doesn't stick on me goes back to you <laughs> right. it, that kind of thing and people have been marveling about it for a really long time but it's it's really um it's fascinating and powerful, and the media needs to be aware of it. But what do they do? I mean, you know, we had Naomi Klein on, who's talking about how, you know, using, you know, just equating communists, Marxists, fascists, radical left thugs, all the, these, this can kind of empty the meaning of these particular categories. Like, it actually means yes. something to be communist. It means something to have a Marxist outlook on, yes. you know, political economy. It means something like fascism is an actual historically defined way of running a political system. If you just kind of say it all like this, it kind of pulls the power out of those words, it seems like. I completely agree. And I think that that's part of the point. Um, You know, the media and political reporters I've spoken to recently as part of my work um, and just, you know, this, this conversation today, I think everyone is really deeply concerned about the fact that likely the front runner the front runner for the Republican nomination is someone who has very expressly said that he is not in favor of certain parts of democracy. And he's had very, um, you know, blatant anti-constitutional statements. And in order for anyone, the media, scholars, voters, regular folks, to discuss how serious of a threat, not to one party or the other, but to our system of government in America, that is, we need language to describe it like, hey, you sound like a fascist. (laughs) Hey, actually, that's what autocrats say. Um, And in some ways, the words have lost power and meaning, and it all sounds like fluff, but it is not. It's actually quite serious. And that is one of the biggest problems facing journalists. How do we talk about it in a way where those words don't get dismissed or turn people off immediately from even reading the story. Yeah, because it does feel like there's there's also been a push for media to just like call it like it is, you mm-hmm. know, say like, yeah, he's a he's a fascist. Do we think that actually works? Like, do is that like not even on the sort of ethics of of doing that as journalists, but on the practical side of like, does that change anything on the ground? I really don't think it does. Um, I think that that really was one of the big lessons of 2016 was, hey, and then of Trump's presidency, covering him as president, was what to do when the person who is in power Mm -hmm. is lying. And as the media, were we going to be 
clear and use plain, clear language to say, hey, that was a lie. Um, There's a big debate about it. And I think we have come down on the side of that. Yes, clear language is better. But one part that got kind of wrapped up in that was also this idea that not only should the language be clear and holding him to account, but it should also be almost snarky and Mm -hmm. uh, demeaning and rude about the people who could, uh, you know, deign to support someone who would be so telling these lies. And that kind of tone um, deeply, deeply turned off a lot of people Mm -hmm. and also played directly into Trump's You know, one of his main battle narratives that he's been pushing is that the media is the enemy. And Mm. so he really successfully um, curtailed the media's ability to hold him accountable by saying, hey, anytime they're holding me accountable, it's because they hate me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one thing that journalists, we all really need to do is be more um, neutral in our judgmental tone Mm. you know like there is truth out there that exists we can talk about the truth and we can do it without um snark yeah we're here talking about donald trump's rhetoric and how media and tech platforms should handle it this time around joined by emily dreyfus director of the shorenstein center news lab and co-author of meme wars we're also joined by two reporters from the new york times ian prasad philbrick and lena bentahar who've been tracking Trump's comments and speeches and online. We want to get to some of your calls and comments for how what you think should happen this time around, what mistakes have been made, and how, how can they be corrected. Number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. Emily, we haven't talked a lot about the platforms mm. and their role in all this. There was a lot of changes that I think happened between 2015 and now. Could you do it in a minute? <laughs> like the, 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 how, how do you moderate? Uh, how do you do content moderation? I, I feel like has just been through so many eras. Yeah, so many eras. Okay, so let's see if I can do this. Um, so in just like the media, the big platforms were faced with an unprecedented situation when when Donald Trump became the candidate and the president. And suddenly they had to take seriously some of the things that he was saying that were causing problems um, or that were lies or that were harmful. And people were calling on them and the media was calling on them like, hey, guys, fix this. Oh, there's misinformation here. This is coming from Russia. You need to do it. And so kind of on the fly, these big companies were making really intensely big decisions, even though they had thought about elections and stuff like that before. Suddenly, the stakes were much clearer. And it was like, okay, well, we're not going to let political ads on or we're not going to. Okay, if he says something that is this kind of false, we're going to put a note on it. So really kind of um, flying by the seat of their pants, but doing the best that they could Mm. and putting a lot of resources into it. And at the same time, a lot of scholars and researchers like my co-author on Meme Wars, Joan Donovan, um, and lots of other people came about to study what would be the best way to have policies on these platforms Mm. that protects people from misinformation, can detect disinformation, like intentional schemes to Mm -hmm. mislead people um, without curtailing people's rights. And there were a lot of decisions made. The companies invested a lot with AI. With they hired a ton hired of people, tens of thousands tens of people of thousands. say it meta, right? Exactly. Um, and then COVID hit, and there was health misinformation everywhere, and the stakes of that were literally life and death. And so that also made the companies make a lot faster decisions about, hey, we're absolutely not going to let anti-vaccine 
misinformation go on. And, and they had a lot of hard lines mm-hmm. during the COVID era that then also applied politically because a lot of the misinformation was health based and political. Right. Um, but then after 2020, the um, Republicans in the government um Jim Jordan and some other con- congressional people, Holly, Holly yeah. exactly, have really gone after those researchers and those advocates of content moderation. They are suing them. There's um, there's just like a very large uh, concerted effort to make that entire field of study and field of inquiry seem like it is a grand censorship machine Mm -hmm. that is out to stifle freedom of speech among everyone. And they successfully have really successfully turned the word censorship into into like a meme and a dirty word that people now think applies to anyone on the left who is saying, I don't want you to be able to say this or anyone who's not on the left or the right, but who is like, we don't want lies about the election to be told on the platform. So that brings us to now, which is, that political pressure has really, really changed the field of misinformation and moderation studies, and it has really lessened the appetite and willingness of some of the big tech companies to engage in that kind of content moderation. At the same time, they've lost lots of employees to tech layoffs, um, and they never really wanted to be in the content moderation game in the first place, and were only doing it because the media had put so much pressure on them. But now that the media narrative has changed, um, the pressure is off. A lot of the policies, some at least of the policies of um, YouTube, Facebook, that had been put in place to protect um, people from lies about, let's say, anti-democratic elections or the stolen, supposedly rigged election of 2020 have been rolled back. And now Mm. Trump can say any of that on Facebook. He's been allowed back onto the meta platforms. Um, He was invited to rejoin the formerly known as Twitter (laughs) platform. Um, And and he can say what he wants to say on on them now, Mm. which is a real departure. (laughs) Totally different information ecosystem. So... It's so interesting. Um, James in Oakland, uh, welcome to the show. Hey, James, can you hear us? Well, maybe not. Sounds like he uh, has gotten breaking up there. Let's uh, bring our Times reporters back in here. Let's listen to another um, cut. This one is um, Trump talking about immigrants. Nobody has any idea where these people are coming from. And we know they come from prisons. We know they come from mental institutions, insane asylums. We know they're terrorists. Nobody has ever seen anything like we're witnessing right now. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, It's poisoning the blood of our country. Uh, It's so bad. And people are coming in with disease. People are coming in with, with every possible thing that you can have. So, um... Yeah, Lena Bentahar, like, what do you uh, hear? How would you connect this to the way that he's been talking about um, immigrants on, you know, True Social and his online platforms? Yeah, um, it's 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 really the same rhetoric. Um, he strongly believes that immigration is, um, you know, like a da- like some sort of dangerous um, aspect of of our of of American life mm-hmm. and you know he, it's keeping it and it's, it's widely popular uh, among Americans that immigration is a is a is a bigger issue that mm-hmm. they feel that maybe liberals or Democrats are ignoring 
And so he he's taking advantage of that and taking advantage of that through um, far stronger rhetoric than, you know, he has in the past. And, I, and possibly because, you know, he's in he's in the circles, especially in true so on true social. It's a it's a circle that's sort of mainly his base. So he mm-hmm. feels like he can say these things mm-hmm. um, without really any criticism. You know, Ian, has he used the line poisoning the blood of our country in other cases? I believe he has, yeah, or or we're being poisoned. Um, that is something that he has said mm-hmm. uh, in other contexts too. And yeah, I think, I mean, I obviously I agree with everything Lena said. And I, I think one other thing that that line made me think of is sort of what Emily, the point Emily had made about covering the consequences of this, uh, not just the rhetoric. And I think one of the, you know, one of the uh, things he said at the end there was, um, you know, they're bringing disease. Um, mm. And I think that's not only um, sort of a, a a way of fear-mongering about um, what immigration is doing to the country, um, which has, I think, in in some cases, when he's talking about the southern border, um, racial overtones. Um, yes. I think we should be frank mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also connected to some of the consequential policies that I think he, uh, you know, our colleagues at the Times um, have reported that he wants to actually implement uh, if he returns to office. Um, so he has talked about one of the policies that he implemented uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, was to restrict the number of people who could enter the border uh, on the basis of um, the potential spread of disease. Uh, and one of the um, policies that our Times reporters, our colleagues have reported that he's contemplating is um, using other diseases to justify something similar. Um, mm. Now that COVID has receded a bit, using tuberculosis or using other um, other illnesses, uh, alleging that migrants might be carrying those across the border mm. and then using that as a basis to restrict um, people from entering the country. So I think I think this is actually a great illustration of um, the connection between rhetoric and and policy uh, or, or rhetoric and, and consequences uh, in terms of what Trump is promising to do or pledging to do uh, if he's returned to the White House. Not to keep focusing on this one phrase as as part of it, but poisoning the blood of our country, Emily, just feels like a fairly overt kind of white supremacist call out. Yeah, it it really does. I mean, it is a classically anti-Semitic idea. Um, there's so so many of the ancient <laughs> uh, anti-Semitic movements and um, ideas and conspiracies have to do with like our our white blood they're going to come in and and make our blood not pure anymore um and and not just anti-semitic but you know anti-black racist as well uh and he's being very clear about that it's a dog whistle we're talking about what donald trump's saying on the campaign trail and how media and tech platforms should handle it this time around joined by the shorenstein center news lab director emily dreyfus and times reporters ian prasad philbrick and lena bentahar i'm alexis madrigal stay tuned for more right after the break Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what Donald Trump is saying on the campaign trail and how media and tech platforms should handle it this election cycle. Joined by the director of the Shorenstein Center News Lab, Emily Dreyfus, who also co-authored Meme Wars, the untold stories of the online battles upending democracy in America. And we're also joined by New York Times reporters Ian Prasad Philbrick and Lena Bentahar, who have been tracking uh, Donald Trump's statements. They've got an article out, Donald Trump's 2024 campaign in his own menacing words. I want to go back to the phones. Um, let's bring in Hermione in San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Hermione. Hi, good morning. Thank you. I'm a lifelong um, forum lover. Oh. Um, um, my my fear is the same fear that I've had for so long, that it's not, I don't want to say it's not what Trump says, but his memes, the people eat it up and they love it. It's his incredible popularity. And how do you address the people who support him? Um, I thought of this especially two days ago. I heard Tim Alberta. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with him, the writer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he spoke of his father, who um, was apparently an extremely thoughtful um, man. And he said he held his nose. This isn't verbatim, but the gist of what he says is he held his nose and voted for Trump. And Terry goes asked him why. And he said, because of abortion. Mm -hmm. And it just to me, this is the bigger thing that not and I not what Trump and I know people like this, not what Trump says. I don't want to say that. But Mm -hmm. how do we address the people Mm -hmm. who, for all these different reasons, support him? Mm -hmm. So thank you so much. And I'll take my answer off the air and have a wonderful day and happy holidays. Thank you, Hermione. Thanks for listening. Yeah, there is something really difficult about the American political system, Emily, is that it does many people's very complex, three-dimensional political positions and stakes get sort of funneled into these kind of two candidates. And people end up having to, to pick one. In this case, um, have we learned anything in political journalism about how to talk about Trumpism as distinct or like that, that this kind of Trumpist movement as distinct from Donald Trump? I think uh, no, not really. I would say no. I think mm-hmm. that the way that Trumpism is discussed is treated almost like it's a cult that couldn't exist without the leader Trump. Mm-hmm. I would say that my research for meme wars revealed to me that that's absolutely not the case, Mm. that he was not, he is not um, the cause of the movement that is supporting him. Mm. He is riding the waves of the um, excitement, the unhappiness, the uh, Mm. suspicion and paranoia of the community that has become his base and that was long festering. And I think this is one of the hardest things to do as a reporter at all, right, is to actually be reporting about the real issue behind the thing that is the story. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot of real grievances and, and inequalities and worries that animate the people who support Trump, um, that it gets kind of lost in um, thinking that they're, they're just loving Trump. But the other thing about it is um, 
and I think your caller is exactly right, it's not the rhetoric that matters. It's what's behind the rhetoric. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that's in all cases. This is true whenever there's a saying um, when people are talking about politics, they're actually talking about media, about politics, mm-hmm. because politics is a behind the scenes machine you know Mm. we don't really we're not really talking about Mm. the bills and the 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 writing and the whatever we're talking about what we've heard about it we're talking about what Mm. tim alberta's dad did Mm -hmm. um and and that's a responsibility we have as the media to then therefore make the conversation be about the actual stakes Mm. but it's super duper hard when we have someone who is a culture jammer like trump who's saying things that are impossible to ignore Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm Let's um, uh, on this topic of, you know, Trump and Trumpism, let's listen into um, another Donald Trump clip here. But they're flooding your towns with deadly drugs, selling your jobs to China, mutilating your children. They're mutilating your children. Who would have thought 12 years ago a thing like that to say would be ridiculous? Nobody would know what you're even talking about. Setting fire to your life savings. Releasing violent criminals to prey on innocent people. We have so many people pouring in, and so many of these people are not the people you want coming into our country. Justice will only be done when we have thrown this repulsive political class the hell out of office. We have to get them out. Does Donald Trump's description of what Democrats um, are doing, um, this is a, a... Complicated. Ian, why don't you walk us through what he's talking about here? Um, they're mutilating your children, I believe, is a reference to um, you know gender supportive care by parents of their transgendered kids, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right. And I just want to say, just so everyone's on the same page here, uh, the they at the at the top of that sentence uh, is Democrats or liberals, right? So he is sort of, as you say, accusing uh, Democrats, accusing liberals quote, the ruling class uh, mm-hmm. of of doing all of these things uh, in succession. And, you know, the the allusion to um, lighting your savings on fire, I think that's a discussion of inflation. Um, and just as a parenthetical there, I, I think it's really notable how little of what Trump is talking about on the on the campaign trail really relates to issues that a lot of voters say are top of mind right now. I mean, mm-hmm. he does talk about inflation being high, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that's an example of it. Um, but really, uh, I would say that grievance and his own sort of personal jeopardy when it comes to his own indictments um, is much more central to, to a lot of what he said mm-hmm. on the campaign trail mm-hmm. than sort of policy issues that he that a tradition, a more traditional candidate might run on. Um, but yeah, I, I do think, you know, elevated crime has been uh, mm-hmm. a concern to voters. And I think that's what he's alluding to in sort of those um, those, uh, you know, uh, very strong rhetorical terms. Uh, earlier, we heard about sort of blood flowing in the streets. I think mm-hmm. that is um, what he's discussing there. Um, so I think there's a lot uh, a lot to um, what he's saying, uh, just even in that one clip. And I think it really encapsulates a lot of um, what we were trying to emphasize in this story, that mm-hmm. um, Trump's rhetoric, you know, not, not, all of, not all of this is new, right? I mean, I think it is important to say that Trump painted um, a, a sort of infamously dark picture of the United States um, when he first ran for president in 2015. He had this line about American carnage mm-hmm. in his inaugural address. Um, so not all of this is new. Um, but I do think the talk of sort of uh, it's become intensified. Right. And uh, and it's become much more central, I think, to his message about what the country looks like um, and the apocalyptic stakes of the election. Right. Mm-hmm. That this is sort of what the country looks like under under Biden is his contention um, and what it would continue to look like. Uh, if he doesn't win in 20, if Trump doesn't win in 2024. 
Let's bring in uh, another caller here. Let's go to um, Jonathan in Novato. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, I was curious why the rhetoric the media uses, you know, to describe Trump, why they seem to avoid the harsher, you know, uh, language and the harsher terms. I mean, three, you know, words that certainly come to mind are criminal, thug, ignoramus. Um, and yet, you know, they don't go down that same road in terms of basically calling out the elephant in the room that that is Donald Trump. You know, and I also would posit, you know, that you talked earlier about him learning his lessons and learning and how to adjust his message. I posit that he doesn't learn anything, that the wealth and the well of his knowledge really lies in the bile within him. And that's pretty much it. So no one seems to really go for the jugular when it comes to him. And I'm curious as to why not. Um, Thanks for that, Jonathan. Well, I mean, it's. I think it's difficult for journalists, right? Um, opinion writers certainly do say those things. Yeah. Um, but, you know, people who are reporters out in the field and want to um, continue talking to Republicans, say, uh, may want to use other other language. What do you think? We also literally, as journalists, are bound by, you know, um, best ethical practices and laws. And, you know, we... The, the terms thug and ignoramus are opinions. I, you know, even if I agree with you as a journalist, it, it's not I'm, it's not my job to call someone those words. Um, criminal, on the other hand, is a, you know, actual factual designation. But uh, I think when it comes to Trump, the thing people are scared to use the word criminal, maybe necessarily because what counts as a criminal? He has, first of all, all of these lawsuits. But then the other thing is that. He uses the media saying things like that to bolster his position and the grievances of his uh, of his base. And, you know, we were saying earlier, like his supporters are are very paranoid. There's a lot of grievances that are maybe legitimate. He taps into that with his own paranoia and his own grievance over his lawsuits and things like that. So the media is really trying to be fair and not um, not play into his hand Uh you know, I, I think and and also here's the other thing. We journalists want to reach more people. Mm-hmm. We want people to read our stories who are not necessarily agree, you know, yeah. on our side. And those are the kinds of words that lead to more news avoidance, more dismissing of things. So it's really a hard thing. You know, uh, on the topic of getting people to read stories, Maureen writes, it's important to cover his extreme plans to use the presidency for his personal vendettas. However, I think coverage of his on his plans for issues such as the environment and global warming, the state of education in the country, healthcare issues, job creation, so forth, might be more helpful. What does he stand for? And then what Democrats can do to thwart his policies? You know, we mentioned earlier uh, a lot of the large publications are coming out with packages or, or have long-term plans to cover these kinds of things. One question, though, Emily, is are people going to read those things? <laughs> um, you know, we do live in this reality where people want want stories to be read, that they see it as crucial to the businesses of uh, of media. Do you think that kind of coverage can work? 
I mean, I think that kind of coverage is essential. And and when people are asked, what kind of coverage do you want? Yeah. That's what they say they want. And that's what they need. And it's sure. you know, when it comes time to vote, that's the thing they're looking for is an article like, OK, but wait a second. What does he think about my specific issues? Because the only thing that's top of mind for people are the wedge issues. Like our earlier caller was talking about abortion. Hermione was saying, you know, this is how people vote is based on these one issues. Uh, the thing is that um, people are consuming news in a totally different way yeah. than we journalists are used to. The, the people are not reading <laughs> as long of pieces. You know, you and I come from print journalism, <laughs> and I think a lot of the effort of news gathering and fact checking gets put into these very long articles that we are hoping people will read. Most people do not read them. Most people don't even read past the headline. There's so many. And also people are no longer going directly to news sources to get their news. So the news ecosystem has created this world where entertainment and news are completely blurred. And what you're hearing was maybe distilled through an influencer on a TikTok that was then put onto Instagram and is based on a New York Times article. Um, And so it's hard in that environment to get the detailed stories that Maureen is asking for mm-hmm. to get any play. Right, right, and that's always that's always been the issue trying to trying to cover the specifics of these topics in in great depth versus the 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 more surface state of, of but the campaign. Maybe if we covered them from the perspective of how they really impact real people's lives, mm-hmm. I think when we do do that and we tell a story about real people. It, they, it does get read. And, and it, not just like a policy wonk session. Exactly. Yeah. With yeah. four lawyers quoted. Right, right. Um, Lena, one thing I'm curious about, you know, Trump has long been sensitive to ratings, which is to say to feedback, you know, from what seems to be working. Is he getting that from Truth Social? Like, can we see which messages are resonating more or less about what he's saying? Oh, definitely. He... Um... He definitely interacts with his, with the users on True Social. It's not clear to me um, whether these are just just re- regular people or if they're um, other politicians. Sometimes mm-hmm. he he reposts from other politicians, and sometimes it's, se- it's seemingly um, from fans. They send them fan art, they send them memes, and he um, sometimes it can go into some really threatening territory, um, threatening. Um, uh, Trump's political p- opponents on his behalf, and he reposts. He reposts all of those. Wow. Yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting because it, it seems hard to know where things go from here. Emily. like yeah. we we already are at this level of kind of rhetorical pitch, and we are here like December in the year before the actual election. As you've talked to political reporters, I mean, what are their plans to kind of cover the evolution of this rhetoric over time? I think that one thing that political and media reporters are grappling with right now is the idea that uh, journalism itself and news is reliant on being part of a democracy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we know from the history of autocracies that um, freedom of information and knowledge of informing a populace are one of the first things to go when you have an autocrat in power. And so I think as reporters are gearing up to cover this election, they're trying to cover it from a perspective of being uh, clear about the fact that we as a nation are a democracy and the media requires a democracy in order to um, thrive. And so do the voters. And so 
trying to cover this election from a pro-democracy perspective mm-hmm. um, is is a new thing to ask journalists to do, I think, because we're not usually trying to do anything from a pro-anything perspective. Right. Um, but democracy used to be kind of the backdrop that we could take as a safe assumption that everyone on the right and left, we all agreed, like, we are a constitutional republic and that's what we agree to. It doesn't seem like that is actually the consensus anymore mm-hmm. on the f- side of one of the major parties. Um, and so I think that people are really grappling with how to do that, how to make the demo- the stakes to democracy clear, how to be um, empowering voters and readers mm-hmm. in a way that supports democracy. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I'm the most worried about, to be honest myself, is the political violence issue. We saw with the insurrection that Trump was is willing to engage in inciting violence. We saw that his supporters are willing to engage in violence in some cases. And uh, as um, was just noted, he is getting even more intense in his violent rhetoric and his supporters are increasingly being violent in their rhetoric. And he is amplifying that. And vi- violence is itself um, a great way to get attention. And Trump lives and breathes off of attention. So I'm I'm worried about that. And I think that a lot of re- um, reporters and journalists are worried about that as well and are mm-hmm. going to take it very seriously. Yeah. Just want to note there are some um, dissenters. I mean, Michelle says, you know, the media gives Trump way too much airtime and just repeat everything he says, gets way more attention than any other candidate. And he's going to win uh, again because of that. Um, Jeff writes, to our detriment, nobody has made the simple connection that many Americans now consider criminals, fictional or in real life, as heroes. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump neatly sits alongside the two greatest modern American heroes, Tony Soprano and Walter White, uh, you know, from The Sopranos <laughs> and Breaking Bad, all men who spurn societal norms. Liberals, yeah. myself included, and intellectuals in general need to consider this when talking about uh, these trends. Um, one quick thing, uh, Lena, are you all going to be tracking this all the way through the election? Have you, this is sort of like step one or are you moving on to other things? Uh, we are looking into that. Um, I think Ian can probably tell you more than I can. Sure. Ian. Yeah, I think, look, I think, uh, to the extent that Donald Trump, uh, as Emily said, is sort of appears to be the on track to win the Republican nomination. We'll see if that changes. Um, I think it's going to be important to continue to cover what he's saying uh, and as well, you know, behind the scenes, what he plans for his um, second term were it to happen. Uh, so whether that's us or whether that's the Times uh, writ large, I think uh, that kind of coverage yeah. will absolutely continue. We've been talking about the things Donald Trump has been saying on the campaign trail and how media and tech platforms could handle it this time around. Been joined by Ian Prasad, Philbrick, and Lena Bentahar, reporters at The Times who've been covering Trump's comments and his speeches and online. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much. We've also been joined by Emily Dreyfus, director of the Shorenstein Center News Lab and co-author of Meme Wars, The Untold Stories of the Online Battles Upending Democracy in America. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I was so glad to be here. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.